Hi, and welcome to all artists, educators, and more likely members of my ARE 633 class to this episode of Art Education in Critical Times. Today, I'm going to be talking about engaging pre-service teachers in critical consciousness. Student teachers learn rather quickly from their mentors that they are, as Arthur Eflin would put it, in charge of the game. They learn to implement technique-driven lessons that yield artistic products that follow very formalistic rules and are very neatly presented in the summative rubric. What does an A look like? What does a B look like? Did you follow the rubric? When questioned as to why their lessons are so regimented and why they have these very stagnant requirements for art lessons, both the mentor teacher and student teachers will object, stating that these projects are infused with individual creativity because the subject matter of the project, in most cases, is freely chosen by the student. Pre-service art teachers who have been prepared within the art and visual culture education department believe that allowing their students to use popular culture references in their work is a sufficient integration of visual culture into their teaching practice. They believe that allowing students to draw, sculpt, paint, or in any other way render popular brands, pop icons, or cartoon characters in their artwork demonstrates a level of openness to their students' lived experiences and promotes deep-level thinking. I would argue that there are huge gaps in this manner of lesson plan development, and that brings to light the false interpretation of visual culture as that which relates solely to subject matter taken from popular culture and in no way changes the practice derived from the fine arts. Uh, this is a, a false interpretation of visual culture that was noted by Paul Duncombe in 2009. So essentially what he was saying is that there are a lot of teachers that use or claim to use visual culture in their teaching practice by allowing brands, cartoon characters, etc. into the content of their students' works. However, these students are interpreting what they see in the world in very traditional ways such as oil pastel, colored pencil, graphite, and so the medium and the content isn't working together. It isn't a perfect marriage. And when that's happening, that's kind of a false or a misguided or misinterpreted way of using visual culture. This semester and last semester, uh, I serve as the university supervisor for pre-service art teachers enrolled in their semester of student teaching. So what does that mean? Essentially, the student teacher, once they've completed all of their necessary coursework as an undergraduate, in their final semester, they work alongside a mentor teacher Monday to Friday uh, during the entire school day, and they learn from this mentor teacher. They're in the art classroom, they are taught and shown how to develop lessons, how to provide assessments, and how to work within a particular school district. My job is to have uh, seminar meetings with these student teachers and to really offer an additional set of support for them and to offer uh, guidance as kind of a go-between between the student teacher and their mentor teacher. So in these past two semesters, I've observed 30 art lessons in five different schools, uh, middle and high school level, and have noticed one recurring theme. Students taught both by the mentor teacher or the pre-service art teacher, the students in these classes acutely follow the instructions and expectations mandated. There's a palpable culture of compliance in our schools that is perhaps not born out of art classrooms, but it certainly lives within them. Again, going back to Arthur Eflin, he wrote that art teachers, like all teachers, assert the authority of the institution. And if, in the eyes of the system, they are good teachers, 
they will be able to turn on creativity and turn it off again in time to clean up and get the children back to math and reading. It's a little bit of a disturbing quote, but it's seen time after time. Arthur Eflin was writing this in the 1970s, and still here now in 2019, we see this repetition, this reproduced institutional culture of compliance within the school walls, even within the art classroom. So I want to question how art educators, from the nascent level of their prep programs, learn to embrace art curriculum that perpetuates this culture of compliance. Are we blind to this culture of compliance? There are so many factors that go in and coalesce to prepare an art teacher. They have previous school experiences in their own life, their university preparatory coursework, most importantly, their mentor teacher's practice. But then there's also another tool that they have in the toolbox. They have online curricular resources. And this is what I'm choosing to focus on for this podcast. I really want to look at the impact of online curricular resources, specifically those made widely available on social media platform, Pinterest. During our seminar meetings, I've often asked student teachers where exactly their lesson plans originate. As I've worked with them over the past two semesters, I've started noticing, as I mentioned earlier, more and more that the lesson plans that these student teachers are generating are very much uh, school art based. And in just a little bit, I'll kind of go into what do I mean by school art or skills-based instruction. So they routinely admit to using social media platforms to search for art lesson plan ideas. At first, we were kind of trying to get to the bottom of this. And I was asking them, I was like, okay, so where are your lessons coming from? And they would tell me that they've developed some in, in other classes or from their mentor teacher, things that they've seen before. But as I probed more and more, it was, okay, so did this you know, lesson just hit you like a, a dream in the middle of the night and you thought to do it? Where is the idea coming from? And we started eventually kind of getting to what search platforms they're using. And one that all of my student teachers admitted to using was Pinterest. So... Social media sites have become, as I said earlier, kind of part of the art educator's toolbox. But it's a part of that toolbox that as of yet, or at least as of what I've been able to try and find and research, have really not been critically investigated in any way, shape, or form. So examining the case of one platform, Pinterest, I thought it would be interesting to try and explore and analyze the following question. What is the hidden curriculum of Pinterest, and how does it affect the art classroom? So this line of inquiries is inspired not only by my experience with these pre-service art teachers, but it's also informed by practices of investigation gleaned from cultural studies. I'm quoting here from uh, Kellner, writing this in 1995. For those immersed from cradle to grave in a media and consumer society, it is therefore important to learn how to understand, interpret, and criticize its meanings and messages, end quote. So we as art educators are undoubtedly influenced by the digital society in which we take part. There are meanings and messages, good, bad, and somewhere in between, that are embedded within the platforms that serve as helpful sites for curriculum planning and development. We are consumers of content that we find, engage with, and in turn share with members of our digital circles. And these actions are not passive. We're not just passive consumers looking at this media, but we're active because we're perpetuating it within our own classroom environments. 
Cultural studies resist the notion that to simply consume such products is to be a hopeless victim of false consciousness. As I said earlier, we are active, we are conscious, and we need to be critical in our role as producers of digital content, not only within the digital realm, but how that takes form within classroom spaces. So, this podcast is really representing my own attempt to shed light on Pinterest as a platform, to analyze its contents in a critically conscious manner, and that framework comes from Paolo Fieri, and offer suggestions on how to replicate such pauses for investigation and reflection with art educators who are preparing to teach. So, how are we going to break this down? So first, I'm going to provide a framework to define some key terms, those key terms being critical consciousness, school art, and hidden curriculum. Then I'm going to present a case study of one popular artist, educator, and Pinterest contributor, the arty teacher. And I want to look into and share some of the ways that her contributions to Pinterest fall under the category of school art and therefore perpetuate the hidden curriculum of institutional compliance. Then, to close, we're going to have a little bit of a discussion which will include ways of helping prepare pre-service art teachers to research their curricular materials, particularly the ones that they're finding on Pinterest, through a critically conscious lens in order to offer more authentic teaching practices of art making to their students. All right, so let's start with that key term number one, critical consciousness. So this is a term that comes from Brazilian educator Paulo Fieri. He conceived of critical consciousness while working with adult laborers in Brazil. He realized that inequality is sustained when people most affected by it are unable to understand, to decode their social conditions and therefore be advocates, advocates for change. He proposed a cycle of critical consciousness development that involved gaining knowledge about systems and structures, particularly those that cause oppression and sustain inequality developing a sense of power or a sense of agency, and ultimately committing to take action against that particular oppressive condition. So that is called critical action. And really that's the type of lens, even though that I'm proposing today, I'm not really talking about a overt oppressive force. We're talking about Pinterest here, but it really is about how these very subtle ways and forms of oppression, such as the culture of compliance that exists in schools, becomes the status quo and becomes perpetuated by the ways in which we engage students in our art lesson plans. And so that's kind of the overall framework in which I'm trying to work, trying to be critically conscious of where our curricular content comes from, of how it is introduced to students, and what potential effects that that has, and really trying to take a moment for pausing and being self-reflexive of where this content comes from and how we engage with it as art educators. So what is school art? We have key term number two coming at you right now. All right, so school art was first identified by Arthur Eflin in his 1976 essay, The School Art Style, A Functional Analysis. So essentially he was arguing that school art is a type of art that is completely unique to educational environments. He said that it lacked meaningful variation and kind of described it as uh, game-like, conventional, ritualistic, and rule-governed. 
So really, he was arguing more that school art perpetuated the school culture of compliance much more than it did what was actually happening in the art world that surrounded it. There were four main characteristics identified by Arthur Eflund for identifying a piece or a project, etc., as school art. Number one, the style is free as conceptual strain. So that means that it's the rules governing what the project can be are largely dictated by the teacher, and the student has relatively no conceptual control over the image, piece, uh, what have you, that is created. Characteristic number two, individual variation, though all pieces are unified under the same prompt. So when you were in school, you might have had to <laughs> recreate some version of Vincent Van Gogh's Starry Night. And so although your piece might have looked a little different from your neighbor sitting next to you, might have looked a little different from that other kid across the table, when all of these drawings, paintings, whatever they might have been, are displayed within the school hallway, they all look like they were made under the exact same prompt. Number three, they are perceptually inviting. And this is kind of the most general category. Really, it's that it is aesthetically pleasing. It's nice to look at. They're the kinds of projects that make the school look more bright, colorful, and happy, and that make it look like students really do kind of have opportunities to have fun within the school environment. Uh, lastly, number four, no direct copies from outside influences uh, from other artists or visual references. And so this, uh, was made in reference to the child art movement that was also very much uh, popular from the decades in the 70s, but also the de decades preceding the 70s, where child art shouldn't have any visual reference point. It should just be created from the individual child within a set of rules that are governed by the teacher. And this way, it's a lot different than kind of more of like a discipline-based example that I gave for one of the other characteristics, the Van Gogh piece. Um, that would be kind of outside of uh, school art. Never mind. All right, so we have made it to our third and final key term, which is hidden curriculum. So hidden curriculum is kind of seen as a side effect of schooling. So it's lessons and norms that are learned not openly through instruction, it wouldn't be like the objective of the day is to become compliant, but rather it's the behavior that is learned as a result of the way in which classrooms are instructed and taught. So it's the transmission of norms and values and beliefs that are conveyed in the classroom and in social environments within the school walls. Arthur Eflin takes up this notion of hidden curriculum in that piece from the 70s, and he, he says that schools exist, at least in part, to transmit a cultural heritage, including knowledge, beliefs, values, and patterns of behavior that are prized by the society and that established uh, the school. So part of this heritage is the art of the culture. So going on to explain school art, he then kind of uh, meanders and then starts writing about how schools as institutions have a latent tendency, so that would be the hidden curriculum, to assert their own autonomy and authority. So this hidden curriculum is made visible in the artifacts that accompany the institution, and these artifacts that mirror the authority and conformity prized by the institutional setting. And so really, the artwork made in school, school art, becomes this artifact of school culture. 
the conformity that we see when every student is given the exact same prompt, the exact same project, the exact same rules and guidelines, and then they create these pieces that all look so similar, is all playing into that hidden curriculum of being compliant, of kind of bowing down in a way to the authority of the teacher, of conforming in that particular classroom environment. Okay, now we got all our key terms covered. We're gonna kind of get into the meat of what I've been exploring over the past few weeks. All right, so for those of you who are unfamiliar with Pinterest, I'll give you a super brief overview, um, but I'm kind of banking on the fact that most of us are a little bit familiar with the platform. So it's popularly considered to be a social network site by its users, although officially by its CEO, it is called a catalog of ideas. And so really it's a, a visual library where you can sort of make a digital bulletin board of different ideas that you might have. And those ideas, you know, one board might be, what am I making for dinner tonight? And the other board could be, what am I uh, going to wear to my sister's wedding and the other one could be you know how to start a garden or how to start a community art project and whatever images relate to those particular boards you can virtually pin. Pinterest is inordinately popular. By the end of 2018 Pinterest users had collectively saved more than 175 billion with a B pins to more than 4 million boards. Bloggers, small businesses, and large companies alike use Pinterest as a means to advertise content and increase traffic. As a user, what you see on your Pinterest screen is uh, set to an algorithm. The more you pin, the more images you see that are similar to your pins. Additionally, there's targeted advertising on Pinterest. So if I'm, for example, pinning a whole lot about, let's say, uh, Thanksgiving dinner, that's coming up here pretty soon, I might start getting a lot more targeted ads from Prime Pantry or from Whole Foods or various other kind of grocers and food services in my area. So more than uh, other platforms, Pinterest is in the business of helping, uh, said with a smirk, consumers find products to purchase. Pinterest estimates that over 300 million people use the site every month, that 98% of these users have tried something new that they found through Pinterest, 84% of users seek out Pinterest when they're deciding what to buy, and 77% of users have found a new brand or product because of the platform. So who is using Pinterest? The average user, user is female, under 40, and earns $50,000 or more per year. All right, so that's kind of the, the general overview of Pinterest. And so what did I do to select a particular case when trying to find if this hidden curriculum of a culture of compliance was being perpetuated or not via lesson plans found on Pinterest? All right, so in studying this hidden curriculum of Pinterest, I wanted to find a single Pinterest contributor with an extensive following. So here are my search criteria. One, the contributor must pin art lessons usable for secondary levels. And I made that decision because my student teachers were working largely at that level. Two, the contributor must be a participating and practicing art teacher. Three, the contributor must have a high number of followers reflected in monthly website visits. And four, the contributor must be active in posting recent materials within the past four months. All right. So in conducting this search, really there were three that emerged as potential cases. And one emerged on top as meeting all of my search criteria. 
the arty teacher has 11,300 followers on Pinterest and over 800,000 monthly website views. Her most recent post was made on November 19, 2019, so she's active, and her lessons are usable for the high school level, although some of them kind of seem more like they were geared towards some younger students. In essence, choosing the arty teacher, that decision was made very clear for me. Alright, so who the heck is the arty teacher? The arty teacher is Sarah Crowther, and she's an art teacher based in England who contributes to a weekly blog and website surrounding her art classroom practice. She provides resources for other art teachers in the following categories. Art assessment, art literacy, artist resources, drawing, image library, grid drawings, mark making, painting, bell work, and units of work. Alright, so she offers a lot of different resources is what we can kind of take away from that. Well, visitors can sign up to be emailed updates on when she's posting new content to her blog, and that's free. The majority of her website, the teaching resources, they come at a fee. So you have to pay between 99 cents and $6 per document, whether it's like one little worksheet or an entire unit of work. On her website, she lists that her mission statement is to provide quality, inspiring, and visual appealing art resources for art teachers around the globe at an affordable subscription price that help reduce workload and facilitate a work-life balance, to publish informative and educational blog posts that improve art teacher subject knowledge and cover pedagogical and inspirational topics. All right. What does she mean by pedagogical and inspirational topics? That's left unclear. Additionally, uh, what does she consider to be informative and quality subject knowledge? That's also left to be uh, questioned. So there's no specific information on her site as to her background as an art teacher, how long she's been an art teacher, what her personal teaching philosophy may be, where she draws influence, theoretically, philosophically, and whether or not she takes on an active role regarding current issues in the field of art education at large. All that goes to say that there's a lot of uh, lacking in transparency regarding the subjectivity and positionality of this particular art educator. And so I wanted to kind of construct a picture of her artistic practice as presented through her lesson plans and her units, because the lesson plans and units are what are most readily accessible and seen on Pinterest. So that is actually how I got to research her in general, is every day I was looking at Pinterest and searching high school lesson ideas, and a lot of these images that were tied back to her site was what I was finding. And so, again, I decided to dig deeper into the content of these lessons. And so between uh, April 11th, 2018 and November 19th, 2019, the uh, RD teacher posted eight units and six lessons. So I went through and reviewed each lesson and unit and took notes as to the content and purpose of each posting. So after kind of getting an initial understanding of the content provided by the RD teacher, I returned back to each lesson and unit and coded them according to the criteria for categorization as school art by Efland or new school art by Good. And so earlier in this podcast, we went through what those four characteristics were, both for school art and for the new school art. And so this is what I found. 85.7% of her lessons and units do not push students to think conceptually and are quickly completed, taking only one to five days of instruction. 100% of her lessons and units are thematically and materially regimented, so meaning that you must follow these criteria. 100% of the lessons and units are deemed aesthetically pleasing, 
and 35.7% of the lessons and units involve direct copying from the work of other artists or outside influences. So she is very compliant overall with the school art style as defined by Eflund. But I also wanted to see if she uh, worked in any way as a new school art teacher would be, which would be casting these lessons in a way that is considered good art education practice by Olivia Goode. So only 21% of her lessons and units enabled students to utilize the same art making methods implemented by the reference artist. None of her lessons deviated from being evaluated in any way other than kind of strict regimented interpretation of what the teacher wanted to see. None of her lessons prompted students to create work based on original abstract or conceptual ideas. And only 7.14% of her lessons integrated contemporary practices within a medium. So overall, much more in line with school art rather than the new school art. So what do these results show? They show that the number one followed art teacher for secondary level art instruction falls almost completely in line with the school art style derided by Arthur Eflund. This is a problem. This style of lesson planning completely perpetuates a culture of compliance and a lack of conceptual and creative development for our art students. As an activity with your own pre-service art teachers or with whatever teachers you might be working with, or even just for yourself, when choosing art lesson plans, let's start to critically analyze and have this level of critical consciousness of where our curricular ideas are coming from, of what train and kind of school of thought they fall within, and whether or not this is really truly in line with current efforts within the field of art and visual culture education. And if it's not, how can we change it to maybe be a little bit more in line with the new school art method as mentioned by Olivia Goode? And going forward, uh, just to be fully transparent, this is something that I'm really interested in in pursuing with my own pre-service teachers, of having this type of inquiry, of first having them log on to Pinterest and giving them the prompt of, hey, find some lessons that look like solid lesson plans to you. Bring them back to class. And then when we're in that classroom environment together, give them the tools of critical consciousness. Give them the tools of what it means to be school art or new school art or social justice art or whatever category we might want to fit them in. And then learn how to analyze these art lessons according to those criteria and qualifications in order to determine whether or not that is truly the curricular content that we wish to have within our classroom practice. In essence, are we, as art educators, perpetuating a hidden curriculum of compliance? Or are we subverting that traditional narrative within our own classroom practices and opening up new spaces of knowing, of understanding, and of making? Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Art Education in Critical Times. I'm Casey Stewart. Goodbye. Uh -huh.